Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Thank you for coming out. So glad that you're here today. Uh, The need to lead, that is that there is a need to lead, and inside of many of us there is this sense of a driving force to make a difference in life and to to uh, to come and to lead others to say, come on, follow me. I've got some good news. I've got something that needs to be changed in this world or needs to be changed in this family or needs to be changed in this business or on this beach or wherever you're from. And, and uh, inside, I think inside of many of us, there is that compulsion almost, but it never gets an opportunity to be able to be freed and to be channeled in the right way. So we're taking about four to six weeks. I'm going to leave it a little bit loose, even though i got a plan. But uh, who knows what God will do. But this, this Sunday, today, is uh, very apropos for what is going on in our country. We're going to talk about can women lead. We're going to talk about this from the perspective of what Jesus taught us, from what Paul taught us, from what the Scripture teaches us. And I have to tell you that uh, since yesterday, I have been really grieved, you know. I have been tremendously grieved from yesterday from what's going on in Virginia. My heart was broken. It was, uh, it was just hard for me to, to distance myself from it. And trying to connect how much of this is the kingdom of God. Trying to be birthed inside of us. And trying to know that when the kingdom comes, that his rule and his reign is a beautiful thing for everyone. Not for just one particular type of person. But for everyone. And this is no more... Uh, in view than it is when we start talking about women in leadership. And uh, because that touches on the whole plateau, the whole, uh, we want to say the iceberg of, of bias and prejudice and, and where we try to exclude people that are different than ourselves or we think that maybe we have more to offer than someone else has to offer because of our gender or because of our race or because of the way we were brought up or whatever. And the kingdom comes in and, as Brian was saying during communion, kind of levels that and then elevates all of us together right into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I came to save the lost. You know, and Paul says, the sinners of which I am the main one, the primary one, I'll say that, of which I was the main one, primary sinner. And so we're going to take a look today, and i got a lot to share, and who knows what God's going to do in the middle of this, too. I want to read a, uh, a quote from you from one of the books. You know, I read. I read a lot of books. I do want to recommend... I want to recommend one. This, here's two books on this, just two of about 12, that 15 I've read over the last 20 years about this. But one is called Discovering Biblical Equality. This is a great book. And if you have read Biblical Manhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, which I had 25, 30 years ago whenever it first came out, this is the book you need to read in response to that or to see another side of the issue. Most recent book that's read is called Man and Woman, One in Christ. It takes apart 1 Timothy 3 or 2, which we're going to talk about this morning a little bit. Every Greek word, you don't have to know Greek. It helps if you know a little bit, but you don't have to. It takes apart every single word and puts it in its proper context. And so if you're serious about learning what God has to say about some of these crucial issues, you should inform yourself. This church, we've said since the very beginning, is a place where you don't check your brain at the door. You know, When you come in, you bring your brain with you. You think. You work through things. You read. You try to understand. You wrestle 
with things. And so in these issues, it's great to inform yourself, to read, to study, to pray, and ask for God to give you exactly what he meant by when he had it put in the Word. So let me read this this, uh, quote to you. I think it'll be up on the screens. Doctrine that falls short of the truth not only impedes believers from walking in the full freedom of the gospel of grace and truth, but also hinders unbelievers from coming to salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. So what we believe is very important, not just to the church, but to the folks outside of the church whom we are trying to bring the good news of Christ to. And so what we believe and how we believe it has an amazing effect on our ability to be able to see others come and join us in this pursuit of God. We're going to be over. If you've got your Bibles, just get in your handout too. You flip your handout over. There is a fill-in on the back side. The primary scripture text is on the back there. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I am going to be reading this from a different version. It's uh, Philip Payne's version out of uh, his wonderful book here, uh, Man and Woman, One in Christ. This is his version of this particular text or his translation of it. And so let's put it up on the screens. Read it and I'll pray and we'll jump into this. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Similarly, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles and gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and all submission. I'm not, I am not permitting a woman to teach with self-assumed authority, Over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. But she will be saved through the childbirth if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Boy, did we need to wrestle with this. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. Okay, we'll see you guys later. All right. uh. It's going to get good, I promise you. (laughs) Father, thank you for this uh, time this morning. Help me, Lord, with the efficiency of vocabulary and and, uh, the way I need to to explain this this morning. Help me in my weakness. God, give me the gift of teaching. Holy Spirit, you are obviously present here this morning in our worship in this time. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and guide me. Help me. uh, And Lord, help us understand. We open our hearts to you. We grieve, Lord, for this world. We do. We grieve. But we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Right now. Right now, Father. Bring your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's unpack this a little bit. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah. Um, your first feeling is this. I'm going to talk about a few things before we actually jump into that particular verse. Okay. So here, your first feeling is this. Some things to consider. The Old Testament affirms women can lead. The Old Testament affirms women can lead. Last week, we talked about older people in the church and how God had used Miriam, Moses, Aaron. Uh, We talked about Anna. We talked about Simeon. We talked about different people in the Bible who were at uh, a later phase of life and how God chose to use them to bring the good news and to prepare for Christ to come. And that in the need to lead... We don't need our older folks bailing out. We need you stepping up because you have lived long enough to learn some things. Plus, I know and you know that there's a 30-year-old inside of that heart of yours 
Only you've got 40 years more experience inside there. And so you take that heart and you take that experience and we've got a lot to be able to offer and for God to use. Well, uh, today, you know, we're looking at women and I want to give you a couple examples. One like Miriam last week. Listen to what it says about her. Micah 6, 4. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also who? Aaron and Miriam. Also Aaron and Miriam. And we know that Moses was hesitant to even lead. He says, I can't speak. And God kept trying to push him out there, push him out there. And he says, you know, whether he stuttered or whether he had some, uh, he just couldn't, didn't feel comfortable leading and speaking. He sends him Aaron, the brother, sister, Miriam, probably Miriam's the one that saved his life so long ago. And so here we are, 80 years of age, getting out of uh, Egypt. And there's Miriam writing a song and dancing before the Lord and leading the people of God. And she also was there as a counselor to Moses all the way through the whole journey. When she went a little sideways, as did Aaron, went a little sideways and they, God had to deal with them about leadership and following on. The people of God at one point in Exodus said, we, you know, basically paraphrased, they said, what about Miriam? In other words, is she going to be back in the leadership circle? They wanted her back in there in order to be led on. So God, right from the very beginning, as he leads his people out of bondage, out of slavery, And toward the promised land includes a woman in the leadership team. How about Deborah over in Judges 4, 4 through 5? Judges, a time when it was, man, what what an awful time, huh? And God is sending along these leaders, these judges. And uh, in Judges 4, 4 through 5, we read, Now Deborah, a prophet, you know, I'm from the south, I say Deborah, Deborah, uh, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time, she held court under the palm of Deborah. She had her own palm tree. Isn't that great? <laughs> Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. If you read this whole story about Deborah, you will find out she was a very not just wise woman and leader, but she could lead the troops. She could give uh, advice in so many ways. God chose to use Deborah at a very crucial time in Israel's history. And uh, they went up to her to have their disputes decided. Well, this is God's word. This is his example. We go through the Old Testament. There's more like Huldah in 2 Kings 2. Huldah was a lady that had said, so they took her answer back to the king. They would go to Huldah and say, what should we do? And uh, the counselors of the king would. And then they would go back to the king and say, Huldah said, do this. The word of the Lord came from Huldah to the kings. And so don't think for a minute that in the Old Testament, God did not choose women to be leaders. Were there more? Are there more men listed? It was a patriarchal society. Of course, there's more there, but it doesn't mean that God wasn't working in the middle of it. William Webb, a great, uh, wonderful theologian, has this term. He calls it a redemptive hermeneutic. And that is, if you begin in Genesis and you work your way through the whole entire Bible, you will see God moving redemptively in the culture to free slaves and to free women. You will see that from the Old Testament right on through until you get into the New Testament. You will see God bringing his kingdom saying, I'm freeing them. Because he works within the culture. And he works against it and he works in it. And he uses the people in it. And if you just track along in there, you will see that golden thread right through the middle of it. A redemptive hermeneutic as God redeems and brings back what he wants and how he wants his kingdom 
to look. And of course, in the church of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be an example of that. This is a small group of the kingdom this morning. Right here. Us. What you see in your local church should be what you see in the kingdom. That's why my heart is burdened this morning. Because I want to see it here. And I want to see this place. And I want to see in our community an example of the kingdom of God. I want to see our stony hearts and our hearts of prejudice and bias. I want to see them healed. They need to be healed as evil. The love of Jesus Christ needs to come and be shed abroad in our hearts in such a way that we lay it down and we embrace the love that saved us. Every man, woman, and child. A sign of the kingdom coming is when old men and young men, young women and, and young men and the youth all prophesy. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all. It's a sign of the kingdom has come. May you do it here, Lord, in great measure. Y'all don't have to shout me down this morning, but you can try. All right? It'll be all right. All right, so the Old Testament affirms women can lead. Number two, the New Testament, actually Paul himself affirms women can lead. Paul himself. So we're going to get to this. Is Paul talking about out two sides of his mouth? What's going on? I'm just trying to build attention up a little bit, okay? <laughs> not like there's not any, anyway. So Paul indeed listed woman upon woman who were very special to him, women who helped lead and were a part of his ministry team. In Romans 16, as you work your way through that last chapter of that wonderful book, we read names like Phoebe right from the very beginning. Well, we read this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Why commending? Uh, Many writers and commentaries believe that Phoebe was actually the one who carried the letter, carried the Roman letter to the people. And so I commend to you, to you, my sister Phoebe, and whether she's representing me, a deacon of the church in Centria, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So there's Phoebe from the very beginning. Deacon, you know, in the early church, deacons were the like the training ground uh, with say the first couple of hundred years, the training ground for the elders to come and for uh, those who led the church. And so it was kind of normal for deacons to take the responsibility and work their way in and learn. And so here's Phoebe maybe carrying this letter, this wonderful letter. And Paul says, she's representing me. And she, you know, give her everything she asked for to help her. Don't push against her. Don't look at her less than you would me. Give her every need that she has. Help her. Be there for her. And then we move on to Romans 16.3. We read this about a couple uh, called Priscilla and Aquila. I like that name. Priscilla and Aquila. You know, that just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Priscilla, of course, is the female. Aquila is the male. Every time we read of Priscilla and Aquila in the scriptures, when it has something to do with ministry, it's Priscilla first. Now, we do read Aquila and Priscilla when it has to do with tent making and some other things that when we read it in the New Testament. But when it comes to the ministry time, Paul always include, makes her the very first one mentioned. And that's, uh, that's very noticeable. That's something we want to take note of because the way they wrote and during this period of time, there was a priority in that of who was responsible. The first one was mentioned. that was mentioned. Listen to this, Romans 16, 3. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. 
greet also the church that meets in their home. And you know, in the early beginnings, whoever hosted the church in their homes, because that's all they had were home churches. They didn't have buildings until much later. The host was responsible to lead the home and lead that church. And so uh, that was Priscilla and Aquila leading that church in their home. Uh, in Acts 18, 1 through 3, uh, Priscilla and Aquila come upon this guy named Apollos. Sounds like a boxer, doesn't it? Apollos Creed. Was that in a movie? Yeah. That was Apollo Creed, right? <laughs> but Apollos. And he was like, you know, he was very astute. And he was a great teacher. And he would go into the synagogues and he would confront the people. But it was on, uh, it was on the issue of repentance, on what John the Baptist had spoke. But Priscilla and Aquila, listening to him speak, said, oh, man, there's a gold mine in this guy. He just needs to know more about Jesus himself. He needs to know about Christ so that he can preach better what he thinks he knows in his heart. But he's got it. The gift is on him. And it's in him. And so what did they do? They took him into their home. Priscilla and Aquila taught him. Listen to this. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila heard him and invited him to their home and explained. Now that's a plural verb meaning both, right? Plural verb, to him the way of God more adequately. And last, you know, I can stand up here and tell you, I told you about one last week of women in my life, older women especially, who has spoken to my life and helped correct me when I was a young guy and full of a lot of zeal and about that much wisdom and just, you know, pushing on and pushing on and how they helped me navigate the waters and all. And so here's Priscilla and Aquila seeing this man who is so gifted and saying, let's take him in, let's train him, let's help him. And this is, again, Paul, Paul celebrating this, okay? Uh, In Acts 18, 1 through 3, and in verse 11, we read that actually Paul spent a year and a half with this couple. He stayed with them for a year and a half. And in Acts 18, 18, as part of Paul's team, he lets them help lead in Ephesus. Now, the letter we read this morning, 1 Timothy, is written about a problem in Ephesus. Duh. Maybe God is doing something here. You see that? He takes Priscilla and Aquila and he puts them in Ephesus in a place where there is a problem that we will unpack in a few minutes. But the point is, Paul had great admiration and leaned into this woman, Priscilla, as a leader and uh, held her in very high esteem. If Paul was adamantly opposed to women in leadership, boy, that would have been a good time to say so. Would have been a good time in Romans 16 to start clipping out all of those names of which there were many. Matter of fact, there's seven out of the ten references to the people that he gives great accolades to are women. Two-thirds of the compliments in that last chapter are women. Why didn't Paul in the middle of it say, oh, I'm wrong. I'm going to write this other letter to 1 Timothy. Let me correct so I don't sound like I'm being contradictory. And he's not being contradictory. I'm getting ahead of myself in my brain here. And, uh, you know, he is trying to, we'll see all of this in a, in a much more fuller fashion as we work our way through this. Junia in Romans 16, 17, 7 is mentioned. It says in this last chapter of Romans, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They, Junia, female, are outstanding among who? The apostles. 
Outstanding, highly esteemed, much to be respected, much to be admired. Who? They. Not Andronicus only, but Junia as well. And he says, and they were in Christ before me. They came to know Jesus before I did. I have such great respect for them, for Junia. And uh, so again, Paul, one after the other, seven out of ten times at the end of this book, says again and again and again. Women can be used as leaders. God can work through them. They've blessed me. They've blessed the ministry of Christ. They're important to the kingdom. So your third one is this, okay? Here's your next fill-in. Man, I got to rush through this. The context is always crucial before a conclusion can be drawn. The context is always crucial before a conclusion can be drawn. Those of us who have had kids, uh, especially when you, you know, I love watching kids play in the front yard, right? Throwing frisbees, footballs, you know, attacking each other, whatever. You know, but it's always wonderful to watch that community of young people as they learn. But when, we are, when the kids are growing up and if you live on a, on a road or a highway, what are you always teaching them? Don't run out into the road, right? Don't do it. Don't go out there. And, uh, but if your kids keep chasing the ball out into the road, out into the road, over and over and over again, what do you do? I've had it. Come on in the house. I'm done with this, okay? I'm not going to watch you get annihilated. So taking the ball back, I'm going to put it up, and you guys, go, come on, come back into the house. Now, that's kind of the way I see this. And I know that the metaphor and the example breaks down in many ways, but here's what I thought. I'm like, I'm the parent. I bought the ball. I want them to enjoy the ball, but I don't want it to kill them. And so if I have to stop my immature group of kids long enough to train them and to help them to understand something so they can go back out and have a blast and eventually make it out on the baseball field in high school, in college, or to play soccer, or to play football and know how to play it well and to play it safely then it's worth me pulling everybody back into the house for a little bit of time for them to learn. Get this? Context. Now, if you saw me pulling my kids out of the yard, or my grandkids now, you know, you pull them out of the yard, and and they never go back out again, you'll be like, that's a little severe, (laughs) you know? Just because they ran out into the... Ran out into the road once or twice, you're like, you're going to bring them back into the house, and you're going to lock them up in their room forever? You're never going to let them learn to play ball. You're never going to let them be who they are. Never going to let them enjoy it. Well, if we take Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, that's exact, as a blanket statement, that's exactly what we're doing. Because Romans 16 says there's a big ball game to be a part of. And we get this list of people who are playing the game, who are women, who are doing it well, and are blessing the church. But right now, in the city of Ephesus, In this Gentile church, in this church that is struggling with so much to get its bearing, to get its feet in the right, you know, right place where it can grow. And the Roman Greco influence is very strong here. Uh, Paul is like, you know what? Hey, I've had it. What's going on? The context is this. There is a Gnostic heresy running through the middle of this church. And uh, some believe that the heresy in this church was that Eve, this is what the false teachers were teaching, that Eve was created before Adam. And that 
Eve was to be worshipped and that Eve was, uh, there were some sexual, uh, you know, connotations to it as well. And this had found its way into the church, to this church in Ephesus. And evidently it had found its way into the women, the newer believers, especially in this church. And so what was happening in their gatherings, in their church gatherings, evidently the women were standing up and debating whoever was speaking and not paying any attention and trying to sway the church toward this Gnostic heresy. And thus, Paul sending Timothy there to, to deal with this. Thus, you know, I think that uh, Priscilla and Aquila, having been there, and, all, and Paul is finally like, okay, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I've had it up to here. <laughs> not that he was impatient, but he's like, this thing has got to be shut down right now so that we can get a handle on it and people can be taught the right way. And that's exactly what he says in this scripture is that, you know, I want things to quiet down. I want things to slow down so that people can learn. Let's read this passage again in 1 Timothy 2, 18 through 15. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Similarly, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles and gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and all submission. I am not submitting, uh, permitting a woman. I am not permitting. Paul is not permitting a woman to teach with self-assumed authority. Nobody had given her the authority in that church to speak. She was assuming it. We got that going on all the time in blogs, right? You got people posting blogs and opinions. You don't know where they've been. You don't know if they've ever been in a church, ever been a part of a leadership team, ever paid their dues and learning what it means to follow Jesus, yet they've got millions of people listening to them. You know, and we just give them self-assumed authority. It wasn't handed down through the apostles. It wasn't given in a healthy way. They didn't learn in a healthy way. And so self-assumed authority over a man. She must be quiet. Quiet down. For Adam was formed first, and I believe... This is using the, the, the heresy that was flipped. I think he's using it. He's redeeming this part of it now to put the point back where it should be. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. But she will be saved through the childbirth. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, if she continues in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Because evidently in this church, I, I know... Uh, Steve Robbins used to say it was the new Roman woman. That's the way this other theologian used to describe it, that these Roman women were coming into the church and they had not settled and weren't grounded in the faith yet. And, and so there was much ado about when they showed up and the, and the flashiness. And, of course, God's gathering together had a lot of poor people. 99% of the people were poor. And, and so suddenly there were a lot of elaborate... Uh, you know, dress and all coming into the church and, and then this heresy ran into the middle of this church and it's a young church and it's, it's just it's causing discord and as the teacher or the preacher was preaching and teaching they would stand up and they would start saying that's not true <laughs> you know this is what's the truth and, and so people didn't know and it was just causing a tremendous amount of discord it was a serious problem and uh, notice that Paul says he didn't want women to just shut up. He wants them to learn. You get that? He wants them to learn. It's not about 
stifling. It's about learning so you can speak what's the truth. And speak it in a way. That's what was going on in this church is that it, it just got to the point where Paul just had to do something radical and said, I'm shutting this down. Stopping right now. We're going to slow it down. Slow this thing down. And let's learn. Now let them learn. Let's teach. And let's get them up to speed. Uh, in your, you know, I use the NIV here. I like, I love the NIV. And, uh, but if you use the NIV or if you use the majority of English translations, you will notice that there are 14 masculine pronouns in this section of Scripture. 14 masculine pronouns that are not in the Greek. Not there. Not there. Not there. And uh, that says something in itself. Uh, Paul was responding to this heresy, this um, Gnostic heresy about Eve and, and all of this with a created order as he goes back to Genesis and he starts saying, listen, you know, here's the way it was. And um, Eve was deceived. Adam disobeyed. <laughs> you know, Adam didn't get off the hook on this. That's not the point. He's trying to speak to the issue of the heresy at that time. Paul is not saying that a woman is more susceptible to error than a man. He's not saying that at all. This is a particular situation in Ephesus that he's dealing with. And he's saying, don't fall for this, church. Don't fall for this. Um, Then he gives hope. And, you know, I've read this thing about being saved through childbirth for 46 years being a Christian. And I've just scratched my head at that. Because it almost looks like it says that a woman can't be saved unless she has a child. But that doesn't make sense because Paul said in Corinthians that it was good to be single. So is Paul talking out of two sides of his mouth? No, he's not. He's dealing with a situation. Just like calling the kids in the house. He's going, okay, stop. We're going to deal with this situation right now. If you go back and you look at it as this book does, this by Philip Payne goes back, it's the childbirth. The. What is the childbirth? Jesus is the childbirth. He's going back to the women and he's going, look, ladies, do you realize the salvation of the world came through a woman? Came through a woman. That all of us are going to be saved through the birth, through the childbirth of a woman. Get this priority and this teaching straight. God is using you tremendously. And through the woman, we're all going to be saved. You too. Don't mix this up. So, you know, to bring this together, your last feeling is this. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. I kept thinking over and over yesterday through the day, Galatians 3, 28 through 29, Colossians 3, 11, where there is now no male, nor female, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, all of them, heirs according to the promise. Heirs. Colossians 3.11 says the same thing, basically. Jesus, when he dealt with 
women. He recognized women's intrinsic value. He didn't talk to a woman any different than he did a man. He didn't treat them as less intelligent. He didn't treat them as less knowledgeable when it comes to faith or to life. The first time he declared that he was the Messiah, it was in John 4, and it was to a Samaritan woman. And the disciples came back and saw him talking to this woman. It says they were shocked that he was talking to a woman. Because in that particular era, men did not even stop and talk to a woman one-on-one. And yet Jesus, my favorite story, and one of my favorites, and i got a lot, right? But, uh, you know, in John 4 is when he says, I must go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to, but he had to. He had to because he had an appointment with a Samaritan woman who had a broken heart, who had been married four times, was living with the fifth man who was damaged in so many ways that needed the living water. So what does he do? He goes in. He initiates a conversation with her. He tells her about him being the water of life. She says, sir, give me this water. What does she do? She goes back to her town. She immediately becomes an evangelist. This lady with a track record that would exclude her in her society from ever being used by God. She goes back to her town. She gets the whole town to come with her back out. And they go, man, we want to hear this. We want this water. Jesus goes back and spends a few days with them. That's the Jesus. That's the king of the kingdom. That's who he is. That's who we love. That's who's calling us all together to serve. It's the king who goes to a well in the middle of the day to a broken-hearted woman who breaks every tradition, every mold to say you're important and I have something to give you. I have life to give you. And not only life, but there's purpose now for you. You're going to be my emissary. Go speak these words to your town, to your city. Don't you think they noticed the change in her? Obviously, they knew about her record, and now they're hearing something different from her. Uh, women were a part of Jesus. I don't have to, we go through this almost every uh, Easter and all, but, you know, women were a crucial part of Jesus' ministry team. They were there for him. They financed his ministry. They also ministered to him. They were with him. Uh, there's no way in the world they were the first ones to see that he had rose from the dead. Now, God could have chose anybody. But he chose women. God is no respecter of persons. He loves every single one. Because one day every tribe, nation, tongue is going to gather together when Christ returns. And we'll sing the song of the Lamb and worship together. And we're going to look at each other. And we're going to go, it's come. It's here. The pain, the sorrow, the hatred, the loss... The struggle will have been over. But until that time, God's church is on the earth right now to be that seed. To be a representative of the kingdom. And every local church is supposed to be that. We are shouting to the mess that's in Charlottesville to like, come and see the king. Come and see the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not like what you're experiencing. The kingdom of God is free. The kingdom of God is ready to embrace you, to bring you to himself, to free you. You're of immense value. King loves you. And the church itself, we need to repent. We need to say we haven't done like we should have. We should reach out. We should embrace. We should love. We should be there. We should be able to lay down our own pet peeves and go, God, I'm I'm an emissary of the king. I want to represent you, Jesus, more than anything. I want to represent you more than anything. 
More than my patriotism. More than my lineage. More than anything. I want to represent the king. Because it's the king who gave his life for me. And freed me and is working in me. That is whom I will spend eternity with. Jesus my Lord. Now let me be an emissary. Let this church be an example of the kingdom that has come to the earth. That has started as a mustard seed, but it's growing, it's getting bigger, and it's taking in every tribe, tongue, and nation, man, woman, child, into itself and says, come on, come on, come on. The kingdom is here. Come on. That's our call. That's our joy. That is what we were created for. This is our time, church, right now. Let's stand. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence, Lord. And thank you for your, your cleansing, Lord. Thank you for your call. Jesus, we love you. Could you just worship him right now? You realize that he was a dark-skinned Jew in the Middle East. Do you realize that? That he loved every person that came to him. He took the disenfranchised, everyone, and he grabbed them and he loved them to himself. He gave meaning to those who had no value at all. And he says, come on. That's the king. That is our king. Jesus, we love you. Do a work in us, Lord, this morning. Father, come and build your kingdom in Seacoast Vineyard Church right here at Myrtle Beach and beyond. Father, we desire to see it. Make us a healing, a healing station, God, for every nation, Lord. For every nation. Lord, do a new work in our lives. Create in us a new heart, oh God. A new heart, oh God. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you can learn more about us by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you need prayer, you can call us or email care at seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel called to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or text any amount to 84321 and follow the prompts.